There has been a failure in the transfer of discipleship to the next generation. And if we wanna turn things around, hear me, we're gonna have to break some things off from our past and build some things for our future. If you're gonna be someone who God uses to push back on the secularism that's trying to turn your family into a spiritual statistic, you're gonna have to figure out where those idols are that have caused dysfunction in your family and then tear them down. You gotta tear those things down. This is where you have this resolve inside of you that says these things end with me. These things end here and they end now. I will not carry this forward. And the reason why this matters so much to me is because, listen to me, we do not want the pain and the failures of our life to bleed into our children. We don't want that. And we need to be willing to cut it off. And we do this, we fight for our families by understanding our own formation, why we are the way we are then refusing to just accept those things as normal and having the courage to address the things in our story and in our history that need to be addressed. Hey, uh, we are in week two this morning of a teaching series called Family Matters. Really excited about this series. We're going to be in it uh, through the month of October, really just talking about the importance of family because how many of y'all know uh, that, that the family is currently under heavy attack? Anybody, anybody willing to admit that, acknowledge that? Um, you know, uh, some would call this the nuclear family, which is, um, you know, ba basically that, that uh, married parent unit or that, that two-parent home with uh, two kids, uh, two cars, a house, a dog, a white picket fence, you know, the whole, the whole picture of family. People would say that idea, that vision uh, is under Attack. Other people would say more specifically that it is really the biblical idea of family that is under attack. And, uh, and, and, I, and I, I tend to, to go in that direction for sure. Um, interesting, you know, that there's all sorts of different uh, definitions and ideas and thoughts that come into people's minds when they hear the word family. And I think be, because there is, is really a, a lack of widespread clarity and agreement on this subject, I just really wanna to try to step, do my best to step into that space and to help us uh, define and, and even explain the type of family that, that uh, God really had in mind when he first designed it. Because how many of y'all know that, that family is uh, God's idea, right? Family is God's idea. I think intuitively we understand that anything that God intends to produce flourishing in our lives is gonna face immense attack, anything, right? And, and so this is why, you know, when it comes to God's idea for family, like, like so many of us, uh, you know, do not necessarily experience that or see that every single day. I think that's why it is really important, especially given the times that we are in and especially given, you know, uh, how fast modern culture is trying to redefine family for us to do our very best to understand the unique distinctives of what a godly family is and then to go after those things, right? Um, Look, there was, I think we all know that there was once a day, not all that long ago, when the family unit was really considered the backbone of society. Um, I think there was a time not that long ago when we would have never imagined, you know, uh, that it would ever be under attack like it is today. If you think back 10, 20, 30 years ago, you didn't have to try to understand what a thruple is, you know, where you have not two, but now three people in a loving, committed relationship, I guess, and, and in some cases, even trying to raise a family that way. Not that long ago, you didn't have to worry or think as much about, you know, even, even like same-sex marriages and, and what's called like the new modern family where you have like two dads or two moms and in some ways defining this as like a chosen family, not necessarily a biblical family. 
Um, just a few decades ago, you didn't have to worry as much about the um, epidemic of fatherlessness like we do now and the challenges that a single parent home can create for someone who now has to you know, try their best to compensate for that missing parent. Just a few years ago, you didn't have to worry about whether or not teachers or school administrators would find it necessary or any of your business if your child suddenly decided to identify as a person of the opposite gender. Just a few years ago, right, it was assumed and even championed that parents were the ones that knew what was best for their kids. That idea is under attack as we know it right now. Earlier this year in California, uh, many of you may, may know this, but, but there was a, a bill that was passed by lawmakers, California Bill AB 957, uh, that was sent to the governor's desk to be, to be uh, signed into law. Thankfully, somehow, not sure how this happened, but Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed the bill. But had he signed that into law, what that, what that bill would have, would have meant, it would have required state judges to consider, uh, you know, it, whether a parent affirms and, and accepts their child's chosen gender identity when weighing out child custody disputes uh, between parents who, you know, are divorced or in a dispute for custody. Thankfully, it got vetoed. But, I mean, it's right, this stuff's like right around the corner. And then, obviously, uh, um, you know, if just a few years ago, none of us really had to worry about extreme political groups like Black Lives Matter with a stated purpose to disrupt the nuclear family. And, and I, know, I know I'm probably stepping on, on, on you a little bit. Um, I'm just wanting you to see uh, that there, there's really a lot going on that we're all trying to grapple with, and, and the family is under attack. Like, there was a time when we didn't have to worry about these things, uh, and, and so much more that I didn't even get to lay out. Um, but unfortunately and tragically, the family is under attack. And, and so I, I would say, like, this too, like, if, if you're unaware, you know, there are, there are couples, like, choosing to get married today who have all sorts of anxiety uh, around whether or not they should have kids because of the kind of challenges the family is facing in today's climate. Like, these are real things couples are being, getting counsel on. Like, should we even? I mean, I, if you're a parent, you know, like, you've probably dealt with the emotions of, like, I can't believe, like, I'm raising a family, like, in this kind of world right now. Think, or you start to go down the road and think about a couple generations from now, or your grandkids or great-grandkids, like, what's it gonna be? You know, because it feels like it's not slowing down. It's just going in a direction uh, that, that is uh, becoming uh, uh, so tragic. Um, I bring all this up because I just want you to see that the family's a big deal, okay? It's a really big deal. It's really important. And um, when we think about the family and we think about family of origin like, and things like that, it can bring up a lot of different emotions. I want to just show you a quick picture. Um, this, is, this is a picture of, of my family growing up, uh, extended family. Uh, there's just a ton of cuteness down here in the, in the lower right hand <laughs> corner, uh, probably about uh, six years old in that picture. Uh, my mom and dad, uh, my uncles, uh, my grandparents are in there. And I was looking at this picture this week, um, and, and it just brought up some emotions because I, I, I was realizing, man, there's three people in this picture who are no longer with us. I was thinking about different, different times we'd get together, different holidays. I was thinking about uh, you know, just some very good memories and, and all of that, and also the pain of loss. And grief. You can go to the next picture. I started to think about really just my family of origin, like growing up, my immediate family of origin. And now uh, my mom and dad, my brother, and my sister. Uh, this was probably when I was like um, at peak popularity. Uh, I've kind of peaked at this point in my life. It's been downhill ever since. If you wanna, if you wanna know the truth. Um, but uh, this is. Uh, I was looking at this this picture. I was thinking, man, like wow, how how time has flown and. 
thinking about so many good memories and, and some tough things, too, that we, we went through and lived through. I think my brother's trying to, to join a boy band. I'm not sure what's <laughs> happening there. But, uh, and, then, and then there's this next picture. This is a picture of my family with my wife and my, our four daughters. And um, it's an old picture, about six years old. And um, yeah, right? I think, I think what's obvious about these pictures is there's, there's a, a, a tremendous step up in beauty, right? Uh, when you get to this one, like, thank God for that. Um, it's, all, it's all my wife. But anyway, the, the, I, I was looking at this this week, and it's six years old, and I was just like, oh, my goodness. Like, those are my, my, my little girls. They're not as little anymore. And we're going to go get uh, some family pictures today. And I'm like, yeah, like, like this, is, this is crazy, trying to just capture you know, all of the different emotions and thoughts um, around uh, family and what that's all about. I, I bring this up because I just wonder if, if, if we were to pull up a photo of your family, maybe it's like your current family, maybe it's uh, your family of origin, like, I, like I, I, I showed, I wonder what sorts of things would come up in your heart. You know, because for a lot of people, family is a place of a tremendous pain. Uh, they look back on their life and there are wounds in their heart, there are things that were perhaps carelessly spoken over them, that have just continued to affect them and stick with them all these years. Many people have entire chapters of their life where, um, where at least one parent was absent or unavailable and the pain is still felt. And so when they think of family, it's a place of great pain. And for other people, you know, others of you, maybe you come from a great family. Family is a place of possibility and opportunity. It's like something that, you just, you just love, you love gathering around the holidays, uh, you've got traditions, you've got a, a great family culture, and it's a source of great joy in your life. I just, I just bring this up because I wonder what happens in our hearts when we really think about the family. Because families have an unbelievable way of shaping us into who we become. Would you agree? I mean, Freud really like, talked about this, right? He picked up on this. He popularized it in psychology for over a century until people realized he was kind of weird. Um, but still to this day, like, we're coming to terms with the impact that our homes have on us later on in life. And, and, and so this is a big deal. Family's a big deal. And, and I want to kind of try to step into this space to sort of help us understand really the biblical idea that God has for family and and, and I want to just kind of stop here, okay, because it's really important for me to just, just uh, acknowledge something. Like, I'm aware that not everyone here this morning is in the process of raising a family. Okay, I get that. Um, many of you are, but some of you have never entered into that space, uh, either by choice or not by choice. Uh, some of you have already completed that journey, so I, I get all that. I want to be careful this morning not to preach a message that is so niche that I lose half the room in the first five minutes. Uh, where it only is applicable for some. I truly believe um, that I'm, I'm bringing a message this morning that is for all of us. Um, I want us to really consider two things, okay? All of us to consider two things. The formation of our hearts and our lives via uh, our family of origin, and then also for us to consider the importance of a legacy in terms of our family of origin, because this stuff has a huge impact on who we are eventually become, does it not? Like, in many ways, like, we are who we are because of the environment that we come from, the family that we, we were born in. Like, like, let me just give you an example. Like, like psychologists are, are discovering that if your parents were people who lied to you over and over again, even small white lies, that it can, it can produce a suspicion of relationships inside of you for the rest of your life. Right? We, do, we, we are just affected 
by the environments that we come from. Psychologists are learning that if your mom or dad were always stressed when you were young, it can cause you to struggle with things like math and other sciences. It's a big deal. Uh, on the other hand, what, what, what they've also figured out is if you had parents who, who opened up to you, who were vulnerable, who shared their feelings with you, that it can uh, lower the risk of divorce uh, later on in life for you. Like, it's tremendous. Like, there's so many things that just form us and shape us that we don't even realize uh, throughout our life. And so I just want to kind of frame up this morning like this, if you're taking notes, catch this, this, this sort of big thought with me. I think that if we're going to see a move of God that really transforms a community, which is what we're after, right? We want to see the fame and the deeds of God made known in our community, then we've got to figure out the family. We've got to figure this out. We have to learn how to raise up and give away a spiritual inheritance to the next generation. We have to figure this out. So now again, all right, let me, let me just reiterate. If you're here and you're single or you don't have children, I, 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 I don't want to leave you out. You're not left out in this. I want you to begin to think about how to leave a spiritual legacy to, to young people maybe um, that you know, young people here in our church, a spiritual legacy to those in your extended family. Now listen to me. Like, when we read the New Testament, we read all about how Jesus redefines family, that family is no longer just, just based on, you know, uh, bloodlines and DNA. Jesus, Jesus constitutes a new family in his blood, right? Uh, when he is asked, or when, when the disciples come to him and say, hey, your, your, your mother, your sisters, and your brothers are here, he says, who, who is my, my mother, my sister, and my brother, right? He says, only those who do the will of the Lord, the will of God, are my mother, my sisters, and my brother. He, he's making this this. this clear distinction that the family is, it goes, goes way beyond just uh, bloodlines and DNA, but that it is something that is, that is founded in Jesus. So if you're here today and you're a part of the family, you're, part of the, part, uh, you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of the family. And, and so there are ways for us to frame this up and to look at this and not miss anyone regardless of your stage or phase of life. And so as we, as we get started, I, I, I think it's really important that we remember this, that the family was started and designed by God, okay? Like, this is his idea. He has this thing copywritten, okay? Uh, circa, like, zero or whatever uh, that, that, that year was. Um, the creation account in Genesis tells us that God created Adam uh, and, and that Adam was alone. So in Genesis 2, 18, uh, it says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so he creates Eve. Every man in this room said, thank you, Jesus. Am I right? Okay. Flips, flips back one chapter into Genesis chapter one. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the seas and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every, every living creature that moves on the ground. So look, I'm not, I'm not trying to clobber anyone here who has maybe a different view or vision of family. I'm not, like, sometimes people view these as like clobber verses. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to get back to like the origin where we first see family initiated. And, and what we see here in Genesis 1 is that God designed the family um, and that when he designed the family, he starts with a husband and a wife. 
And then he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply, to have children. Like, this is a good thing. And, and, uh, and so what we see at the beginning is that every family was intended to start this way as a part of God's original design. Okay, this is how he originally designed family to function. It says in Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Again, thank you, Jesus, right? Like, uh, this, is, this is a really important verse. This is the idea of like leaving your family of origin and cleaving and starting a new family. And so Genesis really shows us this uh, when, when we're looking at these scriptures. Again, if you're taking notes, that the concept of family actually predates all civilization as well as the church. Like it, it predates all of it. Like, like this, is, this, is, this is a really old institution. It's been around from the beginning. And from the beginning of time, what we know and understand is that the devil has been attacking the family. Like, like, like since, since the beginning, because, because the devil hates what God has designed for human flourishing. And this attack has only intensified in today's day and age. In fact, Kurt Bruner in Thriving Family Magazine, he says, says this, he says, God designed it. We catch a glimpse of God at work as an artist making another masterpiece, the family. He calls it the family. So he, in this article, he goes on and he says that we know artists by their most important works. So we know Michelangelo by the Sistine Chapel. We know Beethoven by the Fifth Symphony. He mentions George Lucas. He, like, we know him by Star Wars. He said each, each masterpiece reveals something about the artist who created it. And the family reveals something about our creator God. It's his masterpiece. Now, look, understandably, some of us in here can feel a bit confused by this idea because you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, okay, this is God's masterpiece. Um, and you're like, well, my family is like far from a masterpiece. When you go back to your family of origin, you're like, you're like that was a freak show. Like that is it's just not a masterpiece at all. Or you, or you look at like your, your current family and you're like, yeah, it's still a freak show. Like, like just nuts, right? And you're like, this is more like, like first grade art than it is a masterpiece, you know? Just insane. And, and look, like I totally understand the emotion around this for, for many of us, but I, I, I wanna encourage you wherever you're at here, listen to me. God is not done painting. God is not done painting the masterpiece that he has for your family. Like he is still at work. It's not a finished piece of art yet. He is still working on it for you. But you have to understand, I, I want you to catch this with me today, that this masterpiece, your family, like it is under attack. You need to recognize that and know that. The devil our enemy, he is very sophisticated in his attacks on the family, and he's, he's also someone who is patient, he's subtle, he's disciplined, but he's also lethal, right? And sometimes his attacks really come in the form of, like, subtle whispers. Like, hey, you know, like, you know you're unhappy, right? And you really deserve to be happy, don't you? And you deserve better than this, you know? You're... you're, you're Man, it's, it's, it's not really your fault. You're just not that compatible anymore in your marriage. It's, it's time to try something different. And it's like these, these whispers, these ideas, these subtle attacks. I wanna, I wanna just tell you today, like, like the devil is not your friend. I, I hope you know that. He wants to destroy your life and he wants to destroy your family. Now, earlier this year, I don't know if, if you were up, up on pop culture or up on the news, but like Target came, came under like hot water because they were, uh, and, and lost a ton of money uh, in a short amount of, of time because they, uh, they put out a clothing line that, uh, that was designed by someone who was a professed Satanist and LGBTQ activist, 
and uh, put out a, a, a T-shirt uh, that was for sale in their stores that, that had a, like a goat on the front, and it said, uh, Satan respects pronouns. And people were up in arms. They were like, because it was so overt. It's like, really? Like, like we're, we're like pro-Satan now. Even, even those who are like, like uh, you, know, um, no, uh, you know, non-religious, have no, no faith background at all, would kind of be like, hey, that's a little odd to like side with Satan, even if they don't believe in Satan, right? And, and yet it was so overt and in your face. And I just remember when that was happening, I was like, you know what? Like, like I don't think people really understand because they think that, that like anything that... Um, that God is, 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 is about or against, like the Satan is the opposite. And so like, like, like if God is, is, is against me in this, like man, man, Satan's like on my side. Like he's got, he, he's, he's my, um, you know, my friend or whatever in this. But, but I, I remember seeing this and I was like, man, like that is such a lie because no, he does not respect your pronouns. And, and he doesn't respect anything about you. Like all he wants for you is death and destruction. That's all he cares about. And, and so I just, I just think we need to understand this and frame it up properly. Now, look, family's tough. And what we have seen, you know, really since the beginning of time is, is a, a very difficult reality for families to transfer some level of like spiritual inheritance or legacy to the, to the following generations. You go back and like, man, there are mighty men and women of God, even in, in scripture we read about like who, who just struggled, like they had problematic children. They couldn't figure out how to take the thing that had marked and shaped their life and, and transfer it into their kids in a meaningful way. Um, we see this in Judges chapter two. If, uh, if you wanna look along with me, it starts in verse 10, but it says this. It says, after that, whole generation had been gathered to their father. So after they had died, it says, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals or the false gods, the pagan gods, right? And it says in verse 12, they forsook the Lord, the God their father, of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the people around them and it says they provoked the Lord to anger. So we see this idea, right? Like, like one generation that's faithful to God, they, 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 they grow up, they end up passing away. This new generation comes along and and it says they knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. Uh, David Kinnaman in his book, uh, Faith for Exile. So if this is a topic you're interested in, like what's going on in, in uh, this new generation in, in terms of faith and the church and Christianity, uh, David Kinnaman is the president of uh, the Barna Research Group. Um, so there's, there's just some incredible stuff going on. Uh, in this book that you can read about. Um, but he says in this book, he says that teenagers are some of the most religiously active Americans right now, right? They're in church, they're doing stuff. But then he says, he says this, he says that American 20-somethings are the least religiously active. So he gets at this idea that, that, that apparently something is happening when they leave the church. Whereas as soon as they leave, almost, almost immediately they become inactive, and as a result, he talks about how an entire generation is, is, is like falling off the cliff. And, and again, Barna Research Group tells us, uh, th these two things, tells us that 1.2 million kids who have grown up in church will leave their faith in 2023. And that almost 70% will lose their faith during their freshman year of college. And yet these teenagers, as a group, as a, as, as a group are the most active in church right now those in junior high and those in 
high school. And what the data reveals is, is tragically this idea, again, if, if you're following along, uh, that there has been a failure in the transfer of discipleship to the next generation. Okay? There has been a failure in the transfer of discipleship to the next generation. And if we want to turn things around, hear me, we're going to have to break some things off from our past and build some things for our future. And so where do we even begin with this? How do we even start? I like Nehemiah chapter four. It's kind of a theme verse in this series. Uh, Emily uh, mentioned it last week. Uh, Nehemiah says, then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So how do I, like, how, how do you do that? How do you fight? How do you fight for your family? How, do you, how does this really, really work? I want to give you just um, three uh, kind of big ideas, kind of, kind of big macro concepts, okay? Um, number one is if you want to fight for your family, you have to understand your own formation, your own formation. So in other words, like what has formed you throughout your life? Why are you the way that you are? You have to understand these things about yourself. A lot of us have been formed by great people in great moments, people who have had a tremendous impact on our life that we're grateful for, but a lot of us have also been formed by familial dysfunction and traumatic moments as well, right? Like, like we all, you know, sitting here today are the sum total of both of those realities, and it's important that we really dig into this and look at it. Here's why. Catholic theologian Ronald Rollheiser says this. He says, whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. Whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. In other words, the things in you that go unhealed will cause problems for other people. The old adage, right, that, that hurting people hurt people, you know, is, is so true. And so basically what, what Rollheiser is getting at is that there are things that have happened to you throughout your life. And so much of how, uh, how you are currently made up, your current makeup, and how you are currently formed is the result of how you were raised or the environment that you come from. And I'm talking specifically about those things that took place within your family of origin, the things that have left its mark on you for better or worse or good or bad, whatever it is. It's the sum total, right? These are the things that you've experienced at a time in your life at a younger age when you were highly formidable, you were very impressionable. These are things that maybe you thought were normal as a part of your family dynamic. And some of these things may be gifts that you want to carry forward and you're just grateful to God for certain things in your family, but a lot of these things are issues that we also have to resolve because they're, they're, I think we all probably have things, no matter what kind of family you came from, good or bad, we probably all have things that we, we would like to have stop with us and not, and not perpetuate into the following generations. Am I right? So there's things we want to carry forward, and there's certainly things that we do not want to have carry forward. I think that if we're not careful Right? When we're under stress, when we're under pressure, we will bleed these things into the people around us, primarily our own family, our friends, those that we are close to, those that we are in close proximity to. You know, I've worked with a lot of families over the years. I was a youth pastor uh, for uh, several years. I've, I've been in ministry now for about 20 years, and I've worked with a lot of parents and a lot of kids. I've done a lot of uh, counseling. Uh, and here's, here, here's, here's, here's what I've, I've, I've noticed. I've never once met a parent whose plan was to screw their kids up. Never once have I met someone with that goal in mind. The intention was always to do a good job. 
to raise great kids, to be a great dad or a great mom, to, to raise kids who really did love Jesus. And yet in spite of those good intentions, the damage that some of these parents have experienced throughout their life still leaks out under pressure and causes damage to the next generation that they're raising, and ultimately it shapes those kids' lives. Because look, the reality is, is that everybody can make it when life is good, right? Everybody can. It's when you're under pressure, even, even, even like, like intense pressure or psychotic pressure, when you're really at, at like your edge, when, that's when like the instincts, the wounds, the idols, the dysfunction and the pain just kind of come to the surface, right? And I think it's amazing, not in a great way, but it's amazing, it's startling maybe is a better way to put it, how much stuff from our family of origin will leak out of our lives over the years. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like the person growing up, it's like, I don't want to be like my dad, I don't want to be like my dad, I don't want to be like my dad, I'm, why am I like my dad? You know, it's like, I can't believe I just said that, that sounded like my dad. Like, that's the, that's the reality, you know, for so many people, it just leaks out. Um, it's amazing how much of that stuff just, just, just flows out of our life and we don't even realize it from wounds like sexual abuse or suicide or legalism bankruptcy, alcoholism, divorce, disaster after disaster after disaster. This stuff just leaks out of our life. So I got two big thoughts here I'm gonna give to you back to back. Number one is, is a person that does not intentionally build, keyword here, non-negotiable spiritual practices, as well as dig into their own wounds and break off destructive generational spirits will eventually pass those things on to those around them and ultimately to those who come after them. It's just, it's just gonna happen. And so you have to understand your own formation. You have to understand the things that are good that you want to carry on and the things that need to stop and be broken off. And so then uh, here's a second thought. To leave a familial legacy, we have to do some work to really understand how we've been formed throughout our life so that God can heal what needs to be healed and new habits that honor God can be established and then transferred. This is the idea here, right? And so when we look at, at the Old Testament, specifically there is a story of how to do this that I, that I wanna look at. It's from the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges, if you remember, shows us over and over again this um, cycle of failure in the Israelite people. Um, it, it, it's the cycle of failure really is what describes their proneness to disobedience because like, it's like, oh, they love God, they don't love God. Like, it's just over and over and over again. The cycle of failure, or um, in, in, uh, in some circles, maybe even better known as like the cycle of apostasy for the Israelite people, it would usually begin as the new generation was rising uh, up, and, and as they were rising up, they would choose to forsake the Lord and instead for, serve the false pagan gods of the people around them. And so this cycle of apostasy, it would go from like, okay, they're free, and then they would turn their backs on God, or, or like, so it's freedom, apostasy, and then bondage or slavery or oppression of some sort. And then when they're in this bad place where they're like, shoot, like everything's going wrong, they would, then, they would then repent. So then there's repentance, humility and repentance, like calling out to God. God would deliver them and then they would be in freedom and then they would be in apostasy and then bondage and slavery and then humility and repentance and deliverance and freedom. And the cycle would just go and go and go. And there's so many examples of this in the book of Judges where they would start in freedom, then they would be in bondage and they'd go through it all over and over and over again through many, many different generations. And so in this story in Judges 2, uh, this, this happens. Uh, you have the children of Israel rebelling against God. 
And they fall into oppression and eventually they cry out to God and God in his great mercy hears them and raises up a leader to deliver them. Uh, one of those men that he raises up is a man named Gideon. Now, Gideon is a man with really low self-esteem. God appears to him as he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Okay, so just, just make that connection. Like a wine press is not where you typically thresh wheat. Like he is hiding out from the enemy. God shows up to him, an angel of the Lord shows up to him, which is really God. This is a theophany in the Old Testament and calls him a mighty warrior or a mighty man of God. And Gideon essentially turns around to see like who God's talking to. He's like, like he has to assume there's somebody behind him because again, he's one of low self-esteem. Um, and and he, he's, like, he's like, this is certainly not me that you're speaking to. He's like, you don't understand. I'm the least likely uh, person in my family. And by the way, my family comes from like the smallest clan, the smallest tribe. I'm the least likely person in the entire nation that you would want to use. Like, like I'm not the guy. Now, if you remember, Gideon uh, eventually becomes this leader of a very huge army. He's tasked then with taking on the Midianites. But before this happens, God whittles this huge army down to only 300 men and then sends them into battle, totally outnumbered. Miraculously, they are victorious because the battle is the Lord's, not theirs, right? That, I think we sing about that every once in a while. Um, and so in Judges 6, we see this story that before Gideon really even begins into his, his uh, calling, into his purposes that God has for him, the Lord has some things for him to do. And so it says in Judges 6, 25, that, that same night the Lord said to him, that same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Tear down your father's altar, build, uh, altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. So these are, these are pagan gods, graven images that, that, are, that are for the worshiping of, of uh, Baal and Asherah. These are pagan false gods that his father, now uh, he's Jewish, right? So his father has, has forsaken the God, God of Israel and, and is worshiping false gods. He says, he says, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. So in the high places, construct the right altar using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down and then offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So let me explain what's going on here. Gideon is, or God is basically telling Gideon that if he is gonna ever use him to deliver his people, then Gideon cannot let his father's idols bleed into his leadership. That's what he's telling him. You gotta deal with this stuff. You gotta deal with this stuff. God tells Gideon, look, I, I'm gonna need you to tear down the idols from another generation that's caused all of this dysfunction. And he says, he says to Gideon, I want you to take this bowl from your father, the one that he has set aside to sacrifice to Baal, and I want you to cut it up and set it on top of a new altar as fuel for the proper kind of sacrifice of repentance and returning to me, right? This is amazing. And, and, and so this, this is what, what is going on here. So God asks Gideon to tear down his father's altars and then he tells him to build an altar and then to worship, okay? So he's like, I want you to turn this whole thing around. I want you to tear down the stuff in the prior generation. And then in your generation, I want you to start something new. I want you to build a new altar and I want you to start to worship me at this place. And this is obviously not easy. Gideon is terrified to do this. And so he does it under the cover of night. <laughs> can't blame the guy. Uh, and still, God uses his obedience uh, to break off that dysfunction and that idolatry that was uh, trying to be transferred on to the next generation. Gideon said, no more. We're not doing this anymore. 
This isn't happening in our generation. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to be his man. I'm going to be the person he wants me to be. And so all of these things that have existed in the prior generation, I'm going to tear those things down. I'm not going to let them pass on. Look at this, this thought with me. If you're going to be someone who God uses to push back on the secularism that's trying to turn your family into a spiritual statistic, you're going to have to figure out where those idols are that have caused dysfunction in your family and then tear them down. You got to tear those things down. This is where you have this resolve inside of you that says, These things end with me. These things end here and they end now. I will not carry this forward. I'm going to tear down those high places in my family's history that are causing me drama and causing me dysfunction. And I'm going to get rid of it right now. I remember, uh, I mean, it's a real personal story, but um, a number of years ago, uh, my dad and his brothers, they found out some history of our family uh, because most people just know us as like a you know, pretty good family, uh, lots of pastors, they, they, there's a lot of assumption that, you know, man, those guys just have it all figured out. And there were some things we learned about our family, like in our history, uh, of, of a lot of like sexual perversion, like, like, like my great-grandma, uh, or great-great-grandma, like in, lived in like the, the 20s and, and been, she was married five times. That's pretty unheard of, like, you know, like at that, at that time in, in, in society. And we just learned, you know, some things, like, like I think great-grandma ran off with like some guru in like the hot springs of South Dakota or some crazy thing, like just weird. We're like, what? Like this is in my family. Found out that like I have a great-grandfather that was like 33rd degree Mason and all that stuff, like, you know, really demonic stuff he was into. And, and, um, and so like my dad and it was, uh, uh, he had a dream one night uh, here in Des Moines at Glendale Cemetery. There's a, there's a big um, uh, tombstone uh, that just says the name Lombard on it. And there's lots of Lombards who are buried there. And, um, and, and so it's, it's, it's a marker, right? We go and we see it. And, and my dad had this dream of that, of that uh, tombstone just, just falling over on its face. And, um, and, and it just really like spoke to him. And so he woke up and he, he like called his brothers and and uh, they were just like, whoa, like, this is like a big deal. Like, that there's some things in our history, some things in our family uh, that, that need to, like, fall on their face and need to be torn down. And so, uh, you know, my Uncle Marv was the only one living in, in Des Moines at the time, uh, I think. Yeah, he was. And he, he um, got in his car. Like, I mean, he, he did not wait. He took some, some oil, some anointing oil. And he went over to Glendale Cemetery and he anointed that thing and he prayed and he, and he prayed and he contended that generational curses generational things that should not exist, that need to be gone, that need to go, would break off, would not be transferred into the next generation of our family. It's just powerful stuff. Powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. And the reason why this matters so much to me is because, listen to me, we do not want the pain and the failures of our life to bleed into our children. We don't want that. And we need to be willing to cut it off. And we do this, we fight for our families by understanding our own formation, why we are the way we are. And then refusing to just accept those things as normal and having the courage to address the things in our story and in our history that need to be addressed. Amen? Okay. Number two, the second way you, you, you fight for your family, and I am aware of the time. So I am, I am uh, I'm cutting a chunk, and maybe it'll end up in next, next week's. But if you just stick with me for like, like 10-ish, 10, 10, I think. Okay. Okay. Um, there's some really important things here I want to get to you. Number two is, if you want to fight for your family, you have to prioritize the spiritual formation of the next generation. You just got to do it. Um, I think part of the problem facing this generation is not even their fault. 
Like, if, if you're taking notes, I think today's young people are being raised in a generation that has experienced the disorienting collision of certain cultural forces that are contributing to a rapid spiritual decline. Like, it's not even their fault. It's just like they are born at this time in history and they're trying to figure it out. They're dealing with things that you and I never had to deal with. The previous generations, like, like couldn't have imagined. And there's a lot of challenge. Chief among these is the fast rise in secularism. Where, where faith is now something that is, that is privatized. And you can believe whatever you want, but you can't manifest those beliefs in school, in the workplace, or anywhere else in public. Jesus is relegated to a little token in your heart that's meaningful to you, but that Jesus, that same Jesus, who is the resurrected Lord of human history, by the way, he has to stay private and be kept to yourself. And, and it's, it's, it's this movement, it's this idea, like, like that's good for you, that's your little token, it's meaningful to you, but don't let it shape your, your vocation. Don't let it shape your, your vision or how you use your money or what you do with your sexuality like, like, or how you define your identity or how you interact with the world. Like that's just a little too crazy. And we all know that there has been major societal changes around sex, identity, and gender, making it very confusing for young people, especially to figure out who they really are. And holding to traditional Orthodox Christian values can be branded as intolerant or described as every kind of phobic. And so even if you do believe that the Orthodox Christian sexual ethic is good news, even if you do believe that, which, which you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not naive enough to believe that everyone in here does, but if you do believe that, it's, it's not something that you would ever really say because it's supposed to be a private belief, right? It's supposed to be a privatized belief, something you... You keep to yourself. So the goal of secularism is to remove the influence of God and religion on society by making it private and personal instead of public and shared. So it's, it's taken it from the center and moved it to the fringes to where it's ridiculous to let that influence anything we do and how we live our life. And so this is, this is something that like, like really, even in my generation, it wasn't this bad. You know, two, three generations back, like this was, this was not even like, uh, a huge thought, like, because it was much more of like a, a Christian society, at least, at least with Christian moral ethics, to where now a lot of those same ethics are, are viewed as like repressive and, and hurtful and harmful to people. And, and so, look, we are living at a time where we are made to feel badly about imposing our beliefs on others, while at the same time, the secular agenda is imposing an, an ideology, an ideology over an entire generation. Like, like, yeah, like it, it's, it's, it's the tension that our young people are living with, that, that even you and I are dealing with in, in trying to figure out how do we raise a family and all this. Uh, secondly, uh, in terms of cultural forces, uh, is, is, is technology. We have the rise of technology as a cultural force that's contributing to the decline, uh, spiritual decline of an entire generation, right? I mean, I don't even have to really get into this. I think you know, right? It's, it's, just, it's just a different obstacle and challenge and, you know, we can sound so archaic and old-fashioned when we're like, like, you know, why are you just so stuck on that thing? It's like, well, that's how they've been raised. Like, like, like literally, most of our young people, like, like, don't even know what life is like without social media, without cell phones. With, I mean, it, it, it's just, that's, that's how they have been raised. And, and they know it, right? Um, and, then, and then pace is, is really a big deal that they're trying to juggle. And we have the shocking effects of the pace on modern life that has led to the rapid rise in anxiety and depression, where as many as 90% of young people are acknowledging their own struggle with these things due to like the pace of life. 
We're thinking like, you know, and a lot of times as adults, we just dismiss it. And we're like, what do you know about anxiety? What do you know about responsibility? You don't have any problems. You know, like if I could just be a young person again, and it, it, it's, it's ridiculous because like it, it's actually true. Like, like there's so much they've been inundated with that prior generations never had to battle and never had to, to struggle, never had to juggle. There has been such a rise in anxiety and depression amongst young people as much as 90%. So listen, we are witnessing an entire generation that has been under-equipped by their parents who were also under-equipped by their parents because they just didn't have the answers because they were also under-equipped by their parents. And so this has quickly become a generational issue. Unfortunately, it becomes the gift that just keeps on giving. And so I wanna challenge uh, some of you here this morning with this, if, again, if you're taking notes, that, that some of you will have to stretch yourself to an uncomfortable level like, I really mean that. You're gonna have to choose to take this stuff seriously and, and let yourself be stretched to a place you haven't typically been comfortable with spiritually or with God in the past. And you're gonna have to really commit to your own spiritual growth in order to fill in the gaps of your formation that we just talked about in point one. So that what you end up transferring to the next generation is something of worth, something of value, something that they can stand on, something that is meaningful, a spiritual heritage and legacy, and so much of this happens by prioritizing your house, your environment, and your heart as a place that is dedicated to learning about God and all that you do. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, just give me a second here. Um, yeah. That's enough there. I'm going to skip over that. Um, number three, you want to fight for your family. I think that you got to be someone who tells a better story of faith to a generation that's looking to be inspired. You got to tell a better story of faith. Look, we, we all know this. Like, like, we've probably experienced this, that the way in which so many people talk about their faith can make you want to deconvert. Like, there's nothing inspiring. Why would I want to be a part of that? It's like, you know, it's like not inspiring at all. Like, and not literally deconvert, but you know, you're like, yeah, like, like when they're talking about, you know, their faith, you're like, yeah, that's, that's not even close to being fun. That doesn't sound exciting in any way. Nothing about how they describe their faith seems to be marked by life and, and excitement and joy. It seems stale and lifeless and dead. This is why you can read the Bible and you can want that, but then you can look at some Christians and certainly not want that. And I think we owe it to a generation to take it upon ourselves to tell a better story of faith. Not a story that is private and personal, but is public and shared. And the only way we can do that is by actually having our own stories to tell ourselves. Like taking this stuff seriously and getting after it. Letting like, like Jesus really mark our heart and change our life and telling a better story of faith to the next generation so that we don't see 70% of College freshmen abandon their faith, right? It's just ridiculous. It's a ridiculous statistic. I want you to look here at Psalm 145 at the much better story that David tells about God in Psalm 145. This is, this is the story he tells. So I want you to think about like, like, like maybe, maybe you have fallen asleep in church a bunch in your life because you, you had a preacher up there who was just like putting you to sleep and you're like, nothing about this is inspiring. I don't get it. I don't understand it. There's all these like big words and whatever homilies and whatever stuff. And then, or, or maybe like you sat around with your family and, and, and you're like, yeah, I don't get any of you people. This is just weird stuff. Um, 
we gotta tell a better story than that because you know what it's like to be uninspired about God. And I want you to look at like how David tells the story because he tells a better story of faith. Look what he says in Psalm 145. He says, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Okay, he's telling a story. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. He says in verse eight, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. He's telling a story about God, a better story. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Verse 13, your kingdom is, ever, is, is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. I mean, this is, this is David, like, like there's nothing stale. There's nothing dead. There's nothing quiet. There's nothing personal and private here. This is public. This is shared. This is something that he can't keep quiet about. This is the God that he has experienced. And I think, I think that we need to be people who tell a better story of faith to um, a generation that's looking to be inspired. And many times they aren't. And I think a better story of faith might look something more like this. Um, just some, some thoughts I, I wrote down. Like, um, like hey man, I realize that, that faith has become so privatized. I get that. But I just want you to know that there really is a new humanity with a new king and a new ruler. And he is uh, bringing his kingdom into this one to renew all things. I, I don't know if you knew that. Um, he's gonna create a new world where justice will rule and reign and there will be peace and harmony with nature and with each other and with God. And we're gonna rule and reign as kings and priests uh, in, in a new heaven and a new earth and stewarding it properly in order to bring the glory and splendor of the nations into the new Jerusalem where the nations will walk by its light. Like, you know, uh, I don't know if you knew all this stuff was gonna happen, but there will be a river of life flowing out of the temple uh, out through the Mount of Olives that will split in two to create a valley uh, when Jesus finally returns and steps foot on that famous mountain once again. Um, it's pretty amazing stuff. This river will flow out to the Dead Sea and will, and will bring what has been dead for thousands of years back to life. There will be trees that will heal the nations. You're gonna see God face to face. Everything that is sad and broken will be redeemed and restored. That's a way better story. That's a way better story. And that's the kind of story of faith we have to tell. And we have to, we have to actually have passion and excitement in our spirit and believe this stuff if we ever want to transfer this on to another generation. And this is a story that this generation needs to hear. See, look at this thought. I think that so many people don't understand the beauty of the story that we're in. Man, they think, that, they think of Christianity as a restrictive and repressive system that removes your freedom, but the truth is that it actually gives you freedom from slavery to yourself and sin. And it expands your horizons beyond the limited consciousness that we have in this present moment to an eternal vision and age. And then God puts his spirit inside of you as a down payment so that you can know what's real. It also gives you power to make that vision happen now. Like, do, 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 your, do your friends know this better story? Do your kids know this better story? Do your families, extended relatives know this better story? We have to be 
people who tell a better story of faith. So we tell a better story that includes things like redemptive history, like there is a God who is redeeming all things and making all things new. It's redemptive history that we tell, the goodness of God in the world. But there is also revival history we have to tell. If you are not someone who knows what God has done, like, like from, from the first century and, and, and the first few centuries and, and what is written in the New Testament until now, the amazing works of God, it, it, you know, to, to literally come upon a person or a community or, or, or a, um, a nation and radically transform it. I mean, read and study the history. We got to tell the stories. Basically, the reason why we tell revival history is because we want to remind ourselves and others that what we see right now is not all that God can do. He can do more. Like, there is hope. I know that the statistics are bad, but God can do so much more. And then we also want to tell our personal history, right? You got a testimony you have a testimony, and it is custom built by God to impact other people. And it's something that they need to hear, beginning with those in your own home. Beginning with those in your own home. Look at this uh, with me. Um, and I think I'm gonna, invite, I'm gonna invite you up, yeah. I'll just, uh, I'll just try to do this next week. Um, that's the great thing about what I do, is I can just, I always got next week. Um, we need to make the fame and the deeds of God that are on display in our, in our personal story made known to the people around us so that they can capture a vision for themselves of the life that is truly life. That this, this stuff matters. This stuff is important. This stuff makes a huge difference. Um, would you stand? I just want you to bow your heads with me for a moment and, I, and I'm gonna get you out of here and um, I'm sure there's something good to eat in a minute, so don't worry about it. Look, there's some, I know that there's some heavy things I, I, I just shared. I, I hope uh, more than anything, it stirs your heart up um, and that you're inspired um, to not let your family be a spiritual statistic, but you're someone who's gonna be intentional. Uh, you're gonna be someone who's intentional with your own self and your own formation to uproot things that need to go and to build things in you that need to last and need to last for generations to come. But if you're here, here this morning and, you know, head bowed, eyes closed, no one's watching, and if you would just say, hey, Pastor Jordan, as you're talking, like, I, I, I just, man, I really feel like my family is currently under attack and you just need some prayer. Would you just raise your hand? I just, I just would love to just encourage you in prayer. You just feel like it, you just feel it. My family's under attack. I see the enemy at work. I know that he's trying to, to, he's trying to punk us. And uh, we're dealing with some challenges, some struggles. Uh, some of you got two hands up. It's like, I need, I, need, I need two prayers. I need double the prayer. I get it. I get it. It's a heaviness we all feel. And so, Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, I, I just first of all ask for a, a lightness to move into the room uh, and, 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 and to replace the heaviness. God, I ask that you would just start to just peel off our back a burden that maybe we weren't meant to carry all by ourselves. Lord, I pray that there would be courage in this place to start to transfer the, the burden of the people that we love the most onto your shoulders and into your hands and to trust you with them. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name for freedom right now. Lord, where there is discouragement and hopelessness, 
where there is fear, where there is panic about family members, uh, maybe, maybe not serving you, maybe, maybe not making good choices. Lord, I thank you that none of this is too big for you. I thank you that you have plan and purpose and destiny on every family, every person under the sound of my voice right now. And I pray freedom in Jesus' name, freedom in Jesus' name. A new day, a new time, a new season. Lord, I thank you that, that, uh, that, that the old has gone and the new has come. And we, we stand here in agreement right now that there are great days ahead for our families, that what the enemy has intended for evil, God has intended to use for good. I thank you that you have the incredible ability to reshuffle the deck and use what looked like hopelessness, what looked impossible, and to use it for your glory and your goodness. And so we stand in faith today and ask for that. We ask for those stories, God, in our families. I pray divine protection. Would you dispatch angels right now uh, from the north, the south, the east, and the west to surround, to hem in uh, every family, every person under the sound of my voice right now, every demonic assignment to disrupt and to destroy, every assignment of death and destruction upon these families, upon these kids, upon their minds to confuse them about who they really are. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name that truth would, would, just, would, would just come that truth would be protected, that we would have minds and ears and hearts to receive what is real, what is true, and what is good. And we give you thanks because you are the God who is good. You are the God who is faithful. You are the God who designed family. And we know, Lord, you have purpose and plan and destiny for every single one of us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.